Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Flushing is Burning. I'm Grace Carbone and as always I'm here with Christian Romo. Christian, how you doing? Getting over a cold. The Mets didn't make me sick, but they haven't really been <laughs> helping these past few days. Um, I think last week's episode, I, I, I you know, listened to it right after it came out. I believe I said something to the effect of, I'm not going to any games this week, so the Mets can lose as many games as they want. And I did not intend for them to take that literally. Well, looks like your words have a lot more power than you think. <laughs> yeah, they lost. I mean, we're recording this on Sunday. They just lost another game. They've won, what, one game in the last week? Uh, they've lost eight of nine. Yeah, yeah that's your... Whew. It just... it it. Yesterday looked great. Saturday looked fun. Five, five to one. Hell yeah. And then... Um, uh yeah it's back to where it was at least at least today on sunday they didn't give up 14 runs like they did on friday and and the one thing you can you can hang your hat on over the past you know nine games is that you've seen the pitching pitch really well you've seen the bats explode for you know certain games or certain innings but uh the timing just isn't lining up it's not happening at the same time you uh, it's it's really exciting when a team can score eight runs off of Spencer Strider, but if the pitching gives up 10, that equals a loss. It's really exciting when like you can hold a resurgent Pirates team to two runs, but if the offense can only score one, well, that's that's another tally in the loss column. Like the the whole theme of the Mets season has been bad timing and it's there have been so few games where you've seen the pitching and the hitting and the relief pitching just meld together into like one cohesive effort. And that's what makes this past week of Mets baseball super frustrating. Uh, yeah. I mean, let, I'm hoping they called up, they, they shifted some stuff around in their uh, bullpen. They, they, DFA'd Steven Nagosik and they DFA'd Tommy Hunter, which, oh my God, giving up that three-run home run to Ozzie Alves, it, it just, you knew that was going to happen as soon as they brought him in. It was just, it wasn't who, it was when. Like, like it was it was him. Um, You hope that, that exchanging them for John Curtis and Josh Walker, who looked pretty good today, uh, you hope that that will bring some change about, but like you said, it is, it's timing. If... 10 if you can't score you know you score 10 runs against the Braves or eight runs or six runs because each one of those games they scored a lot of runs and then your pitching just continuously lets you down and causes you to lose and then today you lose two to one to a team that you scored seven on you know you dropped seven runs on on Friday it's it's timing and it's also really weird like Kodai Senga looked great yesterday and then the day before the start before that, he looked terrible. Or Justin Verlander and Max Scherzer back to back looking like crap. They got somewhat lucky with the Verlander start, just that they seem to be the only team that knows how to hit Spencer Strider. Um, it's just it's so baffling because there's no clear answer on how to fix this. I don't know what this team can rely on. And I don't mean that as an essential piece of like what makes a winning team. I'm simply saying that when when Buck makes a lineup or whoever's in charge of making the lineup, because for all we know, it may not even be Buck at this point. 
what can he expect out of, you know, his one through nine hitters? What can he expect out of the bullpen arms that he's bringing in in the fifth inning because none of the starters can go past four at this point? I think the only player on this team that you know what you're going to get out of every time is David Robertson because it's not as if the Mets are severely underperforming right now. The, the, the There are a handful of hitters that are hitting good to great right now, including Pete Alonso, who is going to be on the IL for the next four weeks. But the only hitter that's really surpassing their expectations right now is Tommy Pham. The only pitcher that's surpassing his expectations right now is David Robertson, and that's because he's been forced to enter this closer role that he didn't expect to go in. And if you don't have at least a few players that are outperforming their expectations, then you're going to look like a team that regresses to the mean more often than not. And th that's that's a really big problem for a Mets team with such little room for error because all of their all-stars are either aged or locked into long-term deals with the exception of Pete Alonso at this point. And that doesn't leave much wiggle room for change. And so I, I, I ask you, Grace, what, what changes can this team make? Is, is there anything that the Mets can do to pull themselves out of the slump they find themselves in? It's a really bad time to have these issues, too, because it's the beginning of June. If they were having these issues, like if they were holding steady, you know, treading water and then started having these issues middle of July, right around the All-Star break, you could at least say, okay, well, the trade deadline's in two weeks. They can just, you know, figure out some stuff to do then. If they try to trade right now, they're going to get absolutely, like, fleeced, basically. Like, they're, they're not going to be able to trade for anything right now of any sort of substance without getting completely screwed, um, which also could just be the case of just generally with Billy Epler as we've seen him make trades last year uh, and get completely screwed. It's it's difficult because they also don't have a great farm system. So it's not like you can say, oh, well, they can call this guy up or call that guy up. Now you could say that about the bullpen. There seems to be several arms in, in AA and AAA that, that probably could make a difference. Um, they brought up Josh Walker. Um, I know Grant Hartwig's a name that's been thrown around. I believe Nate Lavender's a name that's been thrown around. Mike Vassell's looking very good in Double A, but in terms of pos the position player side, you really don't have any other wiggle room. And like you said, there's no situation in which you're going to say, "Oh well, we'll trade for someone or we'll bring someone up." And they can they can hit for for Francisco Lindor sometimes. Like at a certain point, it's just Francisco Lindor needs to hit better than whatever his batting average is right now, two eleven or two twelve or whatever it was. Um, you know, just Brett Beatty has to, because Brett Beatty's looked a little cold over the last few weeks. He's got to come back around and adjust to major league pitching. That That's another issue when you're relying on guys like Francisco Alvarez, who's looked very good, um, recently, but somewhat inconsistent, uh, Brett Beatty, who's gotten really cold recently, Mark Vientos, who hasn't really been able to do anything at a certain point. It's on, it's their onus to adjust it's it's a really bizarre position to be in because it's not just one issue it's the whole thing it's like a, it's 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 a house where every inch of the foundation is cracked and you're running around trying to patch things up but there's not enough spackle in the world i'm not sure i agree with the assessment that everything is cracked um i agree with your assessment that like the offense 
is not hitting. Obviously, like that has <laughs> been the case, but I, I I don't think it's necessarily an issue of like there are bad hitters in the lineup. This lineup is filled with good hitters that just aren't hitting. I don't know what you can do about that, but wait. The the one defining issue of this Mets season is pitching. They they don't have starters that can go deep. They're missing their best bullpen arm, and so they're leveraging their middle-to-good bullpen arms a little too much. And so there's a very clear ingredient that will help the Mets moving forward. If they can find a, maybe two, reliable starting pitchers that can go six innings every single game, that would help this team tremendously. But here's the problem. You know who else needs pitching? Every team in baseball, which means no one's going to trade their pitching. There's every single team that has reliable starting pitching is going to hold on to that starting pitching as tightly as possible because of the rule changes, because of the increase in offense, because of the increased injury risk to, to pitchers at the moment. Not only do the Mets not really have anyone to trade, they don't have anyone to trade for. And so Mets fans, I think, just kind of got to get comfortable with the pitchers that they have because, yeah, Billy Epler and company can try to find a diamond in the rough and maybe trade a Ronnie Mauricio, maybe, you know, trade some some deeper farm assets for for, I don't know, a middle reliever or two, but what's that going to do an extra win throughout the season an extra two like that's it's there isn't a plausible scenario where the Mets can find a reliable starting pitcher because no one's going to give up the reliable starting pitching there just isn't enough reliable starting pitching to go around and so every team that has it is going to hold on to it as tightly as they possibly can yeah I mean there's probably my guess is there's probably two or three starting pitchers who will be available this deadline. And I think it's going to be because the, the rumor mill is already starting. I think it's, I think Shane Bieber is probably going to get traded just because Cleveland can do that churn. Um, and I believe this is the last year before free agency for him. So that would make sense. So second to last year. Um, what, but if it's second to last year, they're going to want a bounty um, even with his up and down nature since he's won uh, the Cy Young. Lucas Giolito, G- Lucas Giolito is probably on the market, but again, up and down, uh, you know, he's not, he's, it, none of the pitchers who are going to be available are going to be super consistent. Maybe Corbin Burns is available, but at the same time, they're going to want a boatload for him. The only reason why he's available is they don't want to re-sign him, but he's got two years or a year and a half. Um, the Angels, I don't think are trading Otani. I, I genuinely don't think they're going to, because I think Artie Moreno, Moreno really believes that he can re-sign him. Um, it's and and listen i'm also frustrated with the coaching staff in the front office because there there's there were clear issues before the season started um and there's certain in-game managerial and and coaching decisions that are um confounding at times but you're also risking you know this is a team that right now is treading water they could at any point turn it on and they'd be fine cuz the the Braves, I don't, I don't, I didn't see the result today, but they might have lost to the Nationals today. No one in the National League, I mean, the Braves are very good, but like, there's not enough teams in the National League for the Mets to be fully out of it if they keep treading water. If they stay 
around 500, few games below, maybe a game or two above, they will be in the wild card race come the end of the season. There's yeah. just, there's, there's, you're not going to fire Billy Epler right now. You're not going to fire Buck Showalter right now. Because if you do that and you lose, you know, the you fire Buck Showalter and all of a sudden the clubhouse is pissed because you did it in the middle of the season. Or you fire Billy Epler, but that's not going to change anything right now. What What is firing Billy Epler going to do? It's not like he takes all of his decisions with him. And, you know, frankly, his decisions, while not, you know, while they're not paying off right now, Max Scherzer could at any point just, Bam, he's great again. Starling Marte could come out of whatever this funk is, and he's fine. And, and Mark Hanna's looked pretty decent recently. Not super consistent, but pretty decent. Like, he's one of the better hitters in the lineup currently. It, it's just there's no easy fix. And it's not even that there's no easy fix. There's no clear pathway to a fix. That's what makes the Mets right now not even an interesting kind of bad. Like, th- they're not rebuilding they're they're not terribly injured they're missing edwin diaz they're missing pete alonso arguably their best hitter and their best pitcher but they should be able to withstand those losses and play 500 baseball through that and as you said simply by being a part of the national league they are fundamentally in a pennant race and will be for a long time and it it just what what is there to hang on to you know like the, what what Mets fans have to hang on to right now solely, only, this is the only thing they have to hang on to, is the idea that they're still in it. There, there is a pennant to chase. And there is some recent history of bad teams like the 2019 Nationals and the 2022 Phillies turning it on in the second half and making the World Series. Like the 2015 Mets qualify under those terms. But this doesn't look like a playoff team right now, much less a World Series winning team right now. And I still think they have the ingredients to make it happen. But yeah, this is this is a this is a talent issue. This is a vibes issue. Like I, I think there there are potentially individual moves that can be made to help shake everything up. But if I knew what those were, I'd be the GM of the Mets, and I'm nowhere near that. <laughs> I think you hit the nail right on the head with this isn't an interesting kind of bad. There's, there's, it's just like not fun. You know, people keep saying, oh, you know, he spent so much money on this team. This is the worst team that money could buy. The reason why we all still think about the worst team money could buy is that the team was bad, but the players were also like batshit crazy. They're mm-hmm. out here spraying bleach on reporters, which, I don't condone that, and I don't think any of the Mets should be doing that right now. No one should be spraying bleach on anyone. But they were at least interesting in their weird, idiosyncratic ways. This team is really fun if they're winning, but when they're losing, they're just going to be like positive platitudes. Oh, we'll get them next time. That just that makes the on-the-field being bad even worse, because there's nothing there that's interesting other than me being like, well, I think Francisco Lindor is a hell of a guy, and I know he's a good baseball player but it doesn't look that great this season, and the whole team looks terrible. And so there's nothing interesting for me to watch. The most interesting parts have been the Pete Alonso home run race, which is now put on permanent pause um, for the next three to four weeks. And at that point, unless he really goes on some sort of torrid run, it's it's probably not going to happen, getting to 60. Um, Francisco Alvarez's emergence, which is very fun, but that's one player. 
Um, and David Robertson has looked very good, but at the same time, David Robertson being very good on this team means that you run into situations like uh, the last game against the Braves, where he had a one-run margin, and sometimes you screw up. I'm sorry, you scored 10 runs in the game. The pitching should not be giving up nine to put David Robertson in the position that if he gives up a home run, the game's the game is over at that point, essentially, because they then have to hand the ball to Tommy Hunter. I mean, it's just, it's not fun. It's It's borderline unwatchable at a certain point because you're just going into it and it's it's a team that just you know is better than what it is doing and you watch with the hope that they're going to be better but we're at what 65 games 70 games into the season it's not looking great and at a certain point you're kind of too late for it to get to that point you know how unfun this team is francisco lindor was gifted a glove by Gucci <laughs> and it got like a hundred retweets in the first 24 hours. Like that's how little people care about the peripheral Mets stuff right now, because everybody is focused on the Mets losing eight of nine. And by the time this airs on Wednesday, it's entirely possible that the Yankees will sweep because even without Aaron Judge, the Yankees are a better <laughs> baseball team than the Mets are. Maybe it'll be 9 of 11 by that point. Or sorry, 9 of 10 by that point. 10 of 11. I'm, Math. I, you know, they're facing, the, I believe the, the pitching matchups are Severino Scherzer and then Cole Verlander. The Cole starts frightens me. I have no idea how they'd even get a hit off Cole, but also I you'd think that about Spencer Strider and then all of a sudden they're tagging him for eight runs. It, Severino, you'd think like, oh, well, they should be able to do something against him. He hasn't looked great this season. Neither has Max Scherzer. Verlander hasn't looked great. It, 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 they could both twirl amazing outings like you, you would think that they'd be able to. They also could both leave by the fourth inning. There's just, there's no consistency here. And it's, like you said, it could very easily, by the time this episode comes out, be 10 of 11, and then we're going into this Cardinals series with freaking Pride Night. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm going to see, I can't believe I'm willingly going to see this team this week. Here's the good news, though. The <laughs> Mets only play twice in the next four days, which means <laughs> even if you were debating whether to watch the Mets on Monday and Thursday, congratulations. You don't have to think about that anymore. <laughs> I'm working Tuesday night, so I only have to watch them once the next four days if I really want to. Yeah, the Subway Series are fun, though, right? Like, regardless of, like, how the teams are playing. I mean, I've been to two Subway Series games, and I believe they've won both of them, but I'm not going to one this time. So if they get if they get swept in the two-game series by the Yankees, I guess that's my fault. All right. Well, uh, we're going to move on to hopefully some more stimulating, exciting, happy talk. Uh, happy? After, you know, <laughs> I said maybe. Did I? It doesn't matter. We're moving on. Welcome back. Grace, as reluctant as I was to talk about the Mets in the previous segment, I find myself even more reluctant to talk about what was not only the big queer baseball news over the past week, but seemingly the biggest story out of baseball in general. And that was everything regarding Anthony Bass, the Toronto Blue Jays, their pride night. And part of my reluctance is this story 
has seemingly reached its, its conclusion and will be a week old by the time this airs. But there also seems to be some stuff we need to talk about this because there was a whole lot that happened. And I'm wondering if, if your neck hurts as much as mine from, from all the whiplash that I experienced. It really was one of the craziest baseball stories, just generally, of recent memory. Because it was so many different things going on at the same time. And then it was, he apologized. For some reason, he had to do three apologies, but none of them were good. Uh, Don't worry, we're handling this in-house. Actually, he's catching the first pitch on Pride Night. Oh, wait, he can't do that. We've DFA'd him. It's just, it was like every, every step escalated the story further that at a certain point you were like dig up stupid just dig up i don't think there's any perspective we can bring to this that is novel or unique because there seems to be a lot of easily reachable common sense that most commentators have found about this whole situation one thing i will point out that i haven't that i hadn't really considered and maybe this is This is not like here nor there. Whenever there is an employee of a company or a valuable member of a baseball team, a football team, whatever kind of sports team you have that espouses an unpopular opinion, you usually will hear the team come out in front of it and say, while we don't condone this views and while they don't represent the team at large, we respect or we recognize this person's right to hold this opinion. And then I thought to myself, maybe they don't get down that way in Canada. Maybe things are different in Toronto, right? Because like this situation was handled very hands-on by the Blue Jays. This wasn't a situation where Anthony Bass says something stupid and then the Blue Jays come out with a milk toast apology or an acknowledgement of the situation and then like try to cover it up. No, they they very publicly went out of their way to try to resolve the situation. The way they did it was really weird, but it showed in it showed an enthusiasm. It showed a, a an activeness that I so rarely see out of a baseball team. And as questionable as a lot of their actions were, I I do respect how much thought and how much effort the Blue Jays actually put in to A, potentially trying to rehabilitate their player, B, feeding off their crowd and their fans and trying to figure out what the, what the best course of action was. Um, but you got to do better, right? Like you, you can't, you can't do what the Blue Jays did. What's really funny is that the Blue Jays have dealt with, not this exact thing, but dealt with stuff in this arena twice before, really, because they had um, Yunel Escobar in, what year was this in? Uh, 2012, we're on 11 years, was suspended for three games by the league for writing uh, a slur on his, uh, a gay slur on his eye black. Um, and then you had, I believe when Kevin, when the Kevin Pillar stuff happened, it was with them as well. And both times they seem to have taken a very good um, hands-on approach, but like a, a in the way that you would expect would be normal. Um, so Pillar was uh, suspended for two games. And Anthony Bass, they sort of wavered. And I mean, I get it. It wasn't as clear-cut as a slur. Um, but they 
the weirdest decision to me by far. Now I get it. Getting him to make the apologies or whatever, and he didn't seem apologetic, but and everything related to that. The weirdest decision to me was the right after this all happened. This isn't oh, we think he's been, we've, we've, you know, he's gone through some sort of, you know, anti-discrimination training and, and he's, you know, he's sort of thought about this or whatever. We've had some time. Uh, they basically immediately, and like a week after it all happened, said, oh, he's going to catch the first pitch at Pride Night. That's not enough time for A, him to change the beliefs he clearly didn't change, and B, for any sort of hurt to have happened w- with the community both generally, but also specifically in Toronto, for that to have healed totally. That is that is a very quick turnaround, uh, especially since they DFA'd him like twelve hours later. And uh, as much as as much as it did seem like it came out of that, he also was bad for them this year. So you have to suspect that that thought was looming there for a while. But they still went a, went a, and ex- and announced this decision obviously at the same time that they were considering just flat out getting rid of him, which they did. Um, and then they ended up having Kevin Gaussman, who is essentially the Blue Jays version of Mark Canna with how vocally he is an, an ally, catch first pitch, which is the weirdest, like, switch of the two. Yeah. Um, I, it, it's it's utterly confusing. I <laughs> The one thing that I think might have come into play here is the Blue Jays likely found themselves in a situation where had they DFA'd him so quickly after he made those remarks, it probably would have incurred some investigation from the Players Association. And I suspect them putting it out into the public, hey, we're going to try to rehabilitate this situation with them catching the first pitch, was them doing their due diligence in being like, hey, we tried something. We we did something. We, we don't know if it was the right thing. But that's something that teams do when they're trying to, like, put out a logo that they don't know how the public's <laughs> going to respond to. They put it out on Twitter and then let the retweets decide whether it's good or not. That's not something you do with, we might have a bigot on our team. Let's try to do something about it. And, and so I, I don't think it was necessarily like in good faith that the Blue Jays were doing this. I think they were trying to cover their asses in case the Players Association would come after them with a grievance. I don't have any proof of that, by the way. I'm just kind of pulling that out of my ass because I can't think of any other reason why rational adults would do something like, like that. But it, it does strike me as there aren't enough queer people in the room to advise them about this situation. There was there was a really good article that came out in Defector this past week by Lauren Thiessen. I think that's how you pronounce her name. The, the headline uh, was No Straits at Pride Night. And <laughs> it was it was a much more inflammatory headline than what the body of the article included, which was basically a, a very calm and reasonable suggestion that teams should above all else try to make pride nights feel like an inclusive and safe space for queer fans to attend in a way that their other regular season games aren't but i I do think that when it comes to the official moments 
of your pride celebrations, the straights should not be involved in the planning stage, in the production stage, in the performance stage, no straights. And it's only for a day, doesn't have to be for any of the other 81, 80 home games that they have, but you need to find some advisors in there that know what they're doing, that know what they're talking about. Because otherwise, you get an otherwise well-intentioned team like the Toronto Blue Jays looking like the most inept team in professional sports. Maybe the Mets should have a uh, a Twitter poll on whether they should keep Brooks Raley or not. Let let the let the gays decide that one. I mean, um, he's been he's been pitching better recently, <laughs> so that sucks. The Mets need pitching. Yeah, can he blow up over the next two days so that way he doesn't pitch on Pride Night? Like, I'd really enjoy that. Um, but I, I, there should be there should be some sort of position, and I mean, Billy Bean cannot be the person who does this for all thirty teams, but. Um, he was named as the MLB Ambassador of Diversity and Inclusion, I believe was the title of that um, position. Every team should probably have one of those, like an yeah. advisor in that arena, um, not just for, you know, have multiple people in that position. So that way you can do a Pride Night or I know the Mets are doing a Black Heritage Night. Um, any sort of any sort of situation like that where you can bring in people who will tell you the right like the the right way to do something so that way you don't make an ass of yourself because very clearly it's very easy for these teams to make gigantic asses of themselves i heard earlier this week that 29 of 30 mlb teams were hosting their own pride night and my first reaction was oh 29 out of 30 that was a bigger number than i expected good for them my second thought was oh no 29 teams are doing it. Do we expect 29 teams to do it correctly? I don't know if the Kansas City Royals are going to do a Pride Night correctly. I don't really know if the Houston Astros are going to do a Pride Night correctly. We'll see. Well, they're even if Houston does just hangs one gay Pride flag, they will be doing more than the Texas Rangers. Yes, that that is true. We don't have any proof that that's the reason Jacob deGrom went to Texas, but we have nothing to disprove that. <laughs> you know how Liam Hendricks, I don't know if you know this, when Liam Hendricks was, was meeting with teams when he hit free agency, he actually did ask them about Pride Nights and if they right. did them because he wanted to sign with a team that, that took that seriously. Uh, you know, there's no proof, but, you know, you could, I could definitely see a player with what we know to be Jacob deGrom's beliefs uh, asking if they don't do something like that. I think the $180 million was probably <laughs> uh, a bigger consideration, but uh, it would not surprise me if that were the case either, because as the last couple of weeks has shown, nothing can possibly surprise me anymore regarding this info. Yeah. Um, I'm going to Pride. I We'll talk about this next week. I'm going to Pride Night this week, as I m mentioned before at City Field. I enjoyed last year's Pride Night, but uh, this year's is definitely going to take on a different tone uh, given the last calendar year, and I am scared. Uh, I will be getting a Pride fan, like a Pride flag fan, like a one that you, you know, move yourself with your hand, which will be fun, um, but I am terrified by A, what the Mets will do, and B, how the crowd will react. We don't have a good word for that in English, do we? In in Spanish, it's called a abanico. Um, 
and you just know what it means. It's Avanico. It's the fan that you use with with your hand. But I saw the advertising for that um, behind home plate, and I thought, is it like a tower fan? Is it <laughs> like what 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 are we doing here? But no, that's a sixty dollar forty pound tower f- fan for you to bring home. That's in the rainbow colors. I would love that. You know what? Steve Cohen's worth seventeen billion dollars. He could give me a tower fan. Uh, I thought all the money isn't going to Chris Christie first. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, I I think that's enough of that. So uh, we're we're gonna take a break and come back with for sure one hundred percent guaranteed. Promised you some lighter fare. And we are back. Um, Christian, you know who and Anderson Comas is, right? I believe that's Alexander Comas. Alexander, I thought it was Anderson, the one with the White Sox. You've got to be kidding me! Did I get this wrong on the page sheet? <laughs> I, I'm. Let me look this up on Instagram. Anderson makes a lot more sense because that's a it, very Dominican name. It is Anderson Comas. His I on his page, El Brokey, six foot seven, Dominican. I uh, apologize. <laughs> But you know, you know who he is. Um, yes, we, yes. The answer to that question is yes, I do. Yes, um, he is the White Sox minor leaguer who came out as gay. He came out as gay or just like queer. Uh, I, I believe the- gay, and okay. uh, he came out in February uh, yeah. before spring training started. I believe. Yeah, and he's he's with the White Sox. Um, he is currently in their Arizona Complex League. I'm interested to just I like to look up the numbers for people because I like to. If they're good, I like to be like, oh, they're good. And if they're bad, I like to go, oh, we'll, we'll get them next time. Well, I mean, it's <laughs> that's that's with the the understanding that it's the Arizona Complex League, right? Like he just exited extended spring training. Like his his, his it doesn't even start with a letter. He's not single A. He's not double A. He's not triple A. He's he's extended spring training at this point, and that's still professional baseball. That's still something that you know you can be very proud of. Um, but yeah, this, this isn't the same thing as like Carl Nassib coming out as a member of the Las Vegas Raiders. It's not the same thing as Jason Collins coming out as a member of the Brooklyn Nets, like Alexander Gomas coming out in the White Sox system is a very big deal. The support that he's gotten from the White Sox and other players like Liam Hendricks has been, uh, very, very good. Uh, the likelihood we see him in the majors anytime soon, pretty slim, if at all. Uh, still a, a really worthwhile story to to follow because there have been some very positive updates in the Alexander Gomas story. Okay, I'm not. I I'm just looking at his numbers. He was an outfielder. Uh, he has since come out as a pitcher, um, and he's doing very well this year. I mean, he's only been in two games. He's thrown about three and a third innings, but he looks to be doing well. I'm I'm not. I haven't kept up to date with him as of late, so um, I don't. Is there anything specific that he's, or is he just doing well? Uh, he's just doing well. And I don't mean that as like a uh, a very passive thing. He was interviewed recently, I believe by the Chicago Tribune as just a follow-up, just a, hey, how's life going since you've made this really earth-shattering, life-changing announcement that baseball has not experienced more than a handful of times in its 160 plus years of history. And he said that he's enjoying his life more than he ever has. He's happier than he's ever been. He's gotten tremendous support from the White Sox organization, which seems to be very dysfunctional at the major league level, (laughs) but has provided a lot of support to this rookie baller. Uh, And it, it made me smile. It, it, 
is such a, a nice thing to hear, not just from a gay baseball player, but from someone who came from the Dominican Republic, uh, presumably didn't speak very much English and now needs to articulate feelings that no one's ever really articulated in his medium. And that's something that is incredibly difficult, requires a lot of allyship and support, and he seems to be getting it. And I, I don't want to downplay the importance of this development because these are the types of positive stories that future ball players will read and will base their decisions upon. And this is what normalizes queerness in professional sports, mostly professional baseball, but sports in general. To, to hear that none of his teammates seem to have a problem with who he is and how he behaves, that the organization that he plays for has given him ample resources and support. Um, one of the first people that he came to was um, a, a White Sox staffer. I, I forget her name, but she's considered like the team mother. And she's been a, a bountiful, supportive resource for him. And I I want to, to share this update because it's so minor and because it's so blithe and unremarkable because that's what it should be. You should be able to find these players three, four months after they make these decisions and find themselves in a much happier place, in a much more secure place, because that means that these Major League Baseball teams are doing their jobs. And that's not something we've been able to say for a really long time. Yeah, I I just, you know, we've, we've spent so much time on this podcast. You know, we did the Mike Piazza thing, and we did the the Billy Bean episode, who I just finished his book. Um, incredible book. Uh, but it... It definitely this this kind of story and how much it is a non-story at this point is kind of the first of its kind in professional baseball um or at least one of the first of its kind and especially one of the first of its kind in major league baseball and its subsidiaries um by how it, it, it's a non-story it's just like oh yeah i'm doing great the guys were totally cool uh i'm receiving a ton of support you know Stuff like that is really important when the only stories that we've had before this is really like Glenn Burke being ostracized from baseball because he could not stay closeted enough for uh, the team's likings. Uh, Billy Bean deciding that he was done with baseball after, you know, the the trauma of being sent down to the minor leagues the same day his lover died of AIDS-related complications. And Mike Piazza very stringently saying that he is, in fact, heterosexual. That these are our major queer stories in baseball. And to have Alexander, Col Alexander, I'm, oh my god, Anderson Colmar say, no, I'm good. I'm good. You know, everything's good. That's that is so important because it needs to be that once it reaches that level of just being super casual and like, yep, that's the way it is. That's when you start reaching the point of acceptance and equality. And I love that. I, I, I like to hear some some positivity because I'm hearing full grown adults wrangle over very stupid things at the professional level, whether they should invite a well-meaning uh, drag group to Dodger Stadium, whether 
they need to balance that with a pride night, whether you should continue employing your, your bigoted relievers, whether you should try to rehabilitate them in public. Like all of it is just kind of so dumb. And to hear a story out of rookie ball, which is just nice human beings being nice to each other and being supportive because they're all part of the team and it makes sense for them to try to support their pitcher as best as possible. That's how it should be. That's, it's it, it it's very kindergarten logic but that's that's how it should be there there shouldn't be anything else beyond that and it uh it makes me a bit more optimistic about what this looks like in 10 years maybe we don't get the same sort of pride night fiascos that we've been having maybe we just have a bit better representation at the player level at the coaching level the front office level that just has a more level head about all of this that just has a bit of a cooler attitude that just cares a lot less about all of this because we really shouldn't be caring about any of this. People should just do whatever they want and it, it should just be okay. But uh, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of stuff getting in the way of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it doesn't matter what your gender or, or sexual orientation, once you're on a team, the goal is to win. And the second that you start being, you know, weird or, or, or angry or, hateful or whatever towards another player simply because they're gay and you're straight is the moment that the team dynamic breaks down you know and i i reading about reading in, in billy bean's book where he talks about how he there were you know statistically there's other there's players in the major league level right now statistically there's got to be at least one who's not straight imagine they're on a team with anthony bass Clayton Kershaw, uh, um, Trevor Williams, you know, Brooks Raley. That has to be terrifying. And for Anderson Comas to be able to walk into that clubhouse and go, these guys have my back. No matter what, they have my back. That makes him more comfortable. And now he can play better because th there's a level of fear there that once you know, okay, everyone in this room loves me and accepts me and, and wants the best for me and we're on the team and that's the, the whole thing, your performance improves because there's a level of stress there that's taken away. And to hear that he is doing good and that the team is supporting him, it, it does. In 10, 15 years, we might reach a point where Pride Nights are better and maybe a little bit lower key, not in what they do, but in what news stories they produce. Right. Right. Grace, do you have a movie for us? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I'm going, again, I said I was going to do some Pride Month programming, and I'm going to, there's too many good gay movies for me to choose. So again, I will be doing a double feature. The theme this week is um, queer representation in media. And the two films I have selected are, I'm making this sound like I'm actually presenting the films to you, um, The Celluloid Closet and Disclosure. I believe Disclosure is a longer title. Um, but the Celluloid Classic came out in 1995, I believe, 1996. And it's about um, queer representation, gay representation in film from its inception to that point when, when that documentary was being shot in the 90s. And it's based on um, a book by Vito uh, Russo, who started, oh God, what did he start? The Human Rights Campaign? Vito Russo. Or he's very the oh he founded the gay and lesbian he founded Glad. Mm. Um, 
it's it's a very interesting documentary because it does sort of go into the fact that while actual open queer representation on film was was very much not a thing until the 60s there were coded characters that you learned to read as gay and it was mm. it was little things and stuff like like uh, the Maltese Falcon. Peter Laurie's character shows up, and it's oh, the the business card smells of gardenias. He's put perfume on. He walks in with a cane. There's a slight there's a slight lilt to his voice. Mm. Um, you know, there's there's women's prison movies where there's one character who's who's like the the rough and tumble you know leader of the the pack who's taken an interest in our main character for a little bit of a different reason it, and then you you go into the 70s and the 80s where it's starting to be a little bit wider scene but also the issue where it now goes from we don't talk about it at all to we talk about it but they're the villains mm. um and then the way that towards the mid 80s through the mid 90s it started to change, especially with the advent of um, independent film, and uh, which I'm going to use this term. I don't think the film uses this term simply because I don't think it was invented at the time. I think it's something that's been talked about more since it started. Um, new queer cinema with Todd Haynes and um, Greg Araki and that generation of filmmakers um, sort of creating depictions of gay people as more than just villains or like the very linear like these movies are being made by straight people so this is what they think it is it's a very interesting documentary that i'd like i i wish there was like a small sequel to it about what has happened since 1995 to now because it's been almost 30 years a lot has happened um but that's where disclosure which the full title is disclosure trans lives on screen which is a netflix documentary that's where that sort of picks up because instead mm. of it just focusing on broadly lgbtq cinema it focuses on trans depictions in media um which is its own can of worms um and the great thing about it is it's sort of there's there's a lot more of a history than you would think of um and they go into coded characters and the tomboy characters and and trans depiction on film from you know the 50s and the 60s all the way through to today in television as well and it has just the an amazing group of of um people talking heads in in the film laverne cox michaela j rodriguez uh alexandra billings uh chas bono pops up yance yancey ford who made one of my favorite documentaries the last decade strong island and i think that these two films are so important to watch because I think there's a level of, of our history that we don't realize is there. I think nowadays with all of the, and I mean, it's still not great. It's not perfect. But the amount of representation we get now in media has m made us sort of, you know, we can pick what we want to watch. Back in 1995, you didn't really get to pick if you wanted to see yourself on screen. You had to mm. find. You had to dig for that or you had to know how to read the screen you had to know to read that rope is about two gay lovers or that the um mrs dan miss danvers in rebecca was a lesbian you had to know to read that you don't have to do that anymore but i think that there there there's something to knowing where we came from so we can figure out how to get better from where we are right now i i, I i'm interested i i have a question follow-up to all of this because 
there is a lot of what I think a lot of people would consider essential cinema out there that presents very negative depictions specifically of trans people. I'll bring up um, Psycho and Silence of the Lambs as like two examples of, of movies that code their villains as trans. And I wonder as someone who appreciates and studies film, how much of that do you think goes into, um, or how much of, of that changes your appreciation of films like that? Or, or how, how much do you, do you consider it uh, when, when studying it alongside other films that may not you know, cause the same harm by coding their villains as, as, as queer or trans? So the disclosure gets into those films as well, which obviously it would. Um, but that's a very interesting question. And I think it's one of those things that I do with a lot of films um, as someone who does really appreciate the, the art form of cinema. Um, and, you know, I do it with Woody Allen films and Roman Polanski films and stuff like that, where I'm of two minds of them, even while I'm watching them, where one side of my brain is going, wow, this is an incredible film. You know, Silence of the Lambs is an incredible film. But at the same time, you see that you see Buffalo Bill and you go, wow, this is a deeply dangerous character um, and depiction in this film. Uh, Psycho, the same thing. And, uh, you know, you can say the same thing about I love Annie Hall. And I think that glorifying Woody Allen as a person because of the films that he has made is incredibly dangerous. Um, but I think that the it's it's such a tough thing to have great movies with such terrible aspects to them because you don't want to throw. I don't. I, I love Psycho. I love Sounds and Lambs. I do get uncomfortable watching them, and mm. I, it's. It's it's a difficult thing to to do. It's like that. <laughs> this is such a good, this is gonna be such a stupid way to put it, but it really is the way I feel when I watch it. You know that SpongeBob meme where he's looking at the book and he's got the two eyes on both pages. Oh yeah, that's that's how I feel. Like one side is like this movie's great, and the other side is like, but this character is incredibly dangerous as a depiction of trans people. And I think you can hold both, but again, I also totally get it if you don't want to fucking watch those movies at all like i i would not begrudge someone that fact the same way that there are films that are incredibly homophobic that uh but i watch and i go well this is a good movie other than the incredible homophobia in this so i would not begrudge anyone not watching that or a film with um incredibly you know older films from the 40s and 50s that might get into being incredibly racist or incredibly misogynistic I can watch Gone with the Wind, and I think that also gets into the privilege of being white, but I can watch Gone with the Wind while I'm also going, wow, this is really fucked up. But I would not begrudge anyone not watching that. If you came to me and said, I will absolutely never watch Gone with the Wind because I think it is a terrible depiction of race and gender and everything like that, I would say, I absolutely, I, I agree with that sentiment, and I totally do not would not, it, I, it would never cross my mind to judge someone for not wanting to watch Sounds of the Lambs because of that, or to sort not of, watch Psycho. 
sort of like the Mets. Uh, I, <laughs> I, I love watching them, but if you don't want to watch them, that's fine with me. Listen, <laughs> every single movie that we have talked about in the last five or so minutes, I haven't watched any of them. But I did watch a movie this past weekend that I know you have very, very strong, <laughs> loving opinions about. And I just want to talk about Booksmart for a second uh, because I was sick. I needed to watch something. I subscribed to Peacock for reasons that I cannot remember <laughs> at this point. And Booksmart is on Peacock. So I decided to, to give it a watch. And uh, before I share uh, my my opinions about it, I, I want... I want the the thirty second cliff notes about what you think about Booksmart. I think my thoughts about Booksmart can be summed up in this fact: from it came out in May of twenty nineteen, I saw it. I saw it ten times in the theater on its original run. Jeez! So from May to the end of July, when it left my local indie theater, I saw it ten times in theaters, and then I went back for one last go. I got invited to a screening with Olivia Wilde, Beanie Feldstein, and Caitlin Deaver. I the amount of love I have for this film transcends normal humans' perceptions of how much you can love a movie. Um, it it means so much to me in both. I just think it's a great film and also it it's very special to me and my best friend it's very much a mirror of how we interact with each other and how we relate to each other and it it's a very special film to me I will say that I totally I have friends who don't like it um so if you're going to say that you don't like it that is fine I understand my feelings go much deeper on this film than like a normal like I love that movie this movie means a lot to me I generally love high school movies, especially silly high school movies. And I think Booksmart definitely qualifies under that category. My favorite high school movie of all time is Clueless. I think that is a classic. <laughs> um, and there's a lot about Booksmart that I did like. Um, I think the comedy is very quick. It's very witty, very quippy. I do wonder how much of it is going to age. And I think that is impossible to predict. But I, I remember I remember receiving a lot of the jokes thinking like, this feels very 2017. This feels very 2018. Like, is this something that is going to translate well 10 years down the line? I don't know. We'll see. Um, and here, here are like the, the two things that I noticed about Booksmart that like left a very like negative impression on me. The first 10 minutes are very mean. Like everyone in the first 10 minutes, just none of them have anything nice to say about anyone. And that gets better later on in the movie. And I, I appreciate seeing the development of those characters as it goes on. Uh, but I, I was just shocked how these youngins talk to each other. I thought this was Gen Z and and we were past that and everyone was nice to each other now. But no, that was it was very like a classic high school movie in that sense. And I wasn't expecting that. But here here's my bigger here's my bigger quip. This movie takes place in a public high school in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles. And there are zero Latinos in the cast. <laughs> Do you realize 
how many Latinos attend a public high school in Los Angeles. I'm not even exaggerating. Those high schools are like 90% Latino. And I know the high school where they filmed that. They filmed that at Cleveland High School in Reseda. I have covered football games there. That is an entirely Latino high school. And I understand why this movie is as whitewashed as it is. It's Hollywood. It's a high school movie. You're trying to sell it to a mass audience, not just in the United States, but all around the world. But I really, really love my Los Angeles movies. And I want them to be as Los Angeles as possible. And I don't know if this qualifies. I don't know <laughs> if I can like hold on to it as like a quintessential like LA high school movie like I can with Clueless. And 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 that's that's what I have to say about it. And and those are those are things that are very very provincial complaints. It's something that I don't think holds the movie back for most people. And so I I, I don't begrudge anyone for for not feeling the same way. But it was very easy for me to notice how white this movie was in an area that is not very white. See, now I wouldn't know that because I'm not from LA. I'm from Long Island and that generally is what our high schools look like. I know you've also mentioned um, that how much you hate Love, Simon, which is a movie I actually very much enjoy. Uh, that also falls under the category of like watching that movie and being able to specifically point at characters watching with my best friend and point and go, oh, that's like that one classmate we had who was obnoxious or that's like that one theater kid that we all hated. It's part of my love of Booksmart and Love, Simon and sort of these these movies is how much, for some reason, they get very specific about my personal experience, which I have mm. to imagine is at some point for some group of people, given how successful i mean booksmart didn't make a ton of money in the box office but i think it is sort of gathering somewhat of a cult following especially especially given uh where caitlin deaver and beanie feldstein have gone post booksmart um and olivia wilde also sort of helping with that as well um there's there's some level of being able to look at a movie and go that is like someone I know, which also you can say the same thing about like 80s teen movies. I can watch an 80s teen movie and be like, oh, like, oh, I know that kid. Like, mm. there's there's something about that that helps. But I wouldn't have known how not white that school is in reality. And I think I, that is a problem. Like, we need to, if we're going to set this movie someplace, like, you gotta, you gotta get that right. And, and like you said, it's it's Hollywood, so they're going to want to sell this movie. And unfortunately, and however incorrectly that is, there is a belief that the more non-white people that are in your movie, the less you can sell it. One thing I, I really, really loved about the movie was how unapologetic and untraditional the romantic pairings were. <laughs> I... And it, 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 none of it even needed to be explained. I, I loved how our, our two heroes were like, that's the person you like? Okay, then just go for it. Because <laughs> like, that's, that's kind of how you know, romance works in real life. And I, I really supremely liked that aspect of it. I will say the whole relatability factor doesn't necessarily apply to me. I went to an all boys Catholic school. So my high school experience <laughs> was very different. Um, but it, again, there, there are so many parts about like that movie that I really enjoyed. I really hope that it 
sustains itself as a a classic um i just have some la specific complaints about it that i don't think are like you know um things that should like weigh it down so much i do think that there are some like really blithe uh, high school movies that have come out recently that uh, are, are very similar. Easy A is another example of a mm. movie that I otherwise love, but have the same complaint about. Ojai is very Latino and there are no Latinos in that movie. Um, but it's, uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's whatever. It's Hollywood. It's fine. I'm not, I'm not that mad about it. I think it's interesting, especially with like uh, Booksmart, how they eschew the, the reality of what that school would look like for sort of, obviously the two leads most of the main characters in Booksmart are white, but when you actually get into the supporting cast there, there's sort of a, you know, there's there's Austin Crude and there's Eduardo Franco, who is the only Latino member of the cast. Um, mm. There's Nico Haraga. It, it's a very weird, um, like they're trying to do that sort of thing that movies do where they go, we don't see color. And so they put like one of everyone in there, but they're all supporting actors. Uh, that would be something I'd be like, all right, like let's, Let's be realistic here and let's make all these kids Latino. I think that would I I would love to see that. Honestly, I'd love to see a coming of age film that is primarily Latino, you know, because I think I don't know if you've seen um Dope from 2015 where that love, sort of did something love love Dope. One I of love my dope so much. one of my 10 <laughs> favorite LA movies. Fantastic. Everything about it is wonderful. But, like, that gave you very specific um, – two of the three leads are black. And then um, Tony Revolori, I'm I'm forgetting if he's – he has a very Italian sound. I think he's Italian. I think he's, like, part Italian because I don't think he's fully Italian. I'm trying to remember. His – oh, his, he's actually Guatemalan. His real name is Anthony Quinones. Anthony Quinones, why are you Tony Revolori all of a sudden? <laughs> so Revolori is the surname of his paternal grandmother. We're learning stuff on this podcast. He's from Anaheim. <laughs> but uh, Dope dope gave you that really fun, like, okay, this is about a bunch of, this is like two black kids and a Latino kid. And they're like, that movie is so much fun. And I'd love for everyone to get that movie. Oh yeah, no. Like I, I remember watching Book Booksmart, thinking like, "Oh man, this this has the exact same humor. It has the exact same style as Dope. It just it just <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's missing. It's missing. It's missing a little bit of color." And I, I, I think I think people are people often forget when constructing the LA movie that Los Angeles has a majority minority population. It's one of the few big cities in the country where white people are a minority. And uh, I don't think people know that very much. And uh, Hollywood certainly doesn't reflect that very well. But, you know, it's, it's our big industry, too. So, you know, kind of kind of got to do with this. <laughs> oh, man. But, yeah, watch. So there you go. If you're listening, you have four film recommendations. You've got my two from the movie Minutes, Hollywood Closet and Disclosure, which Disclosure is available on Netflix. Um, Cellular Closet, I think, would be like a $4 stream on wherever you get your movies, whether it be Prime Video, Apple TV, whatever. Um, Booksmart, as you said, is on Peacock, and I am going to look for Dope right now and see if that is streaming anywhere. Dope is on Netflix. There you go. Grace, any parting words before Pride Night, before we, we finish this off? I just, you know what, at this point, you know what I would take? I would take 
no one saying no one from the Mets saying anything stupid. Like that's what I want. It, the bar is in hell. Like just literally, I don't need support. I just don't want an Anthony Bass situation. I want everyone just, if you don't want the rainbow, you know, if they come out on the field wearing the rainbow t-shirts before the games and you don't want to be there, don't be there. Just don't say something stupid. I don't want to have to read a Mets player's open letter this week. I think Mets players have some bigger concerns to worry about (laughs) at the moment. You think? (laughs) not, Not something I think you have to worry about. But then again, the last two weeks have shown us Anthony Bass had a 7.5 ERA. You'd think he'd have something bigger to worry about. (laughs) Yeah, you're not not wrong either. Let's just quit while we're ahead, huh? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We genuinely appreciate your support, your comments. Please reach out to us if you have any feedback, and uh, we'll see you next week.